Hi, and welcome back to A Slice of Life from Anxiety Master. Today, we're beginning the first in a series of episodes to think about how to process your emotions. Now, emotions are intense feelings that stem from your life circumstances, your mood, or relationships with other people. Now, experiencing emotions is part and parcel of everyday life. Yet, my daily work with other people suggests that learning to acknowledge and process our responses to life's events is a skill many of us would benefit from developing further. My name's Dominic Decker. I'm a qualified teacher and registered therapist, and your support behind Anxiety Master, here to offer you practical skills for a capable and confident life. Today, let's cover a critical component of processing and resolving emotional experiences. Now, this practical skill is learning to name and frame how you feel. Because learning to identify and describe how you feel is the first essential step in reclaiming control of your internal experience. So how do you tend to manage emotional situations, those events that stir strong feelings? Well, think about moments that can result in emotions that are hard to control. From the more mundane but no less relevant interactions, for instance, a stranger being rude or a loved one appearing short or unavailable when you need them, across to life's deeper challenges such as relationship breakups, health issues or the passing of loved ones and troubling events at work. Now bundled together, pretty much any encounter with life has the potential to evoke emotional reactions. But most of us tend to rely on a limited array of coping skills when these occur. And when strong emotions arise, we might try to talk it out, to go over it again and again and hope we'll start feeling different. Or just avoid it. Or maybe try not to think about it at all. Just get on and hope it goes away. Or maybe eat something or drink something. Now, while these approaches to managing your emotions attempt to provide a strategy for addressing your feelings, they don't change how you feel. I mean, think for a moment when you've found yourself at the height of anger or flooded by disappointment. Now, when those waves spill over, the effect is akin to clinging onto the tail of a galloping horse. The swell of distress brings out a precarious and predictable internal ride. The high emotions feel overwhelming, and with these powerful drivers locked onto the steering wheel, Understanding how to regain control, especially at the moment, will often feel beyond your control. At the peak of emotion, your thoughts may accelerate. For instance, you may ride the wave of anger, and it can even feel exhilarating, but then there's the inevitable fallout and drain on motivational energy afterwards, and it ultimately feels empty. Or, quite unexpectedly, a profound sense of sadness or deep regret may catch you stone cold, and you're left frozen like a rabbit in the headlights. However emotions manifest, these strong reactions often represent a distressing experience in which ultimately we've surrendered our sense of agency and we haven't quite worked out how to take back control. Yet often regaining control of our thoughts is very challenging and there's a simple reason for this. Your emotions, these insanely powerful drivers of behaviour, precede your thinking. Now, in other words, your emotions arise as your primary response to a situation and any thought, should it occur, is secondary. You can test this for yourself. I mean, think back to a moment in which you felt intensely distressed. Caught in that moment, was there much rational thought going through your mind? Well, likely not. For this reason, when we reflect upon intensely emotional responses or distressing experiences, we often say things like, I don't know what came over me, or I just wasn't thinking straight. And that's right. I mean, consider the word emotion. It contains the term motion, referring to movement. And this means that the primary purpose of emotions is to ensure movement and action. In other words, 
emotions provide motivational fuel for survival. So this emotional part of your brain, the amygdala, is the brain segment responsible for your fight, flight and freeze response and it embodies the oldest part of your brain. It's not designed to think because thinking might get you killed if you spend too long reflecting and procrastinating in a hostile or dangerous situation. So by design, emotions are your most profound and most primitive means of receiving and understanding the world. And it's that core sense of knowing that when we experience it, it's tough to reclaim your cognitive focus and attention. If you've ever had an anxiety or panic attack, you'll already have experienced this phenomenon. And during a panic, levels of distress run to capacity. And you might tell yourself to calm down, that everything's fine, that there's really nothing to worry about. But these well-meaning sentiments merely skate across the surface because you've no room to absorb them. In essence, it's impossible to talk yourself back down again because you've no capacity for reason when emotions are centre stage. And equally, people suffering from depressive episodes are, despite how they might appear, highly emotionally aroused. They spend excess time in worry and introspection driven by their imaginations, telling themselves that, for instance, everything is awful and nothing will get better and nobody understands and everybody is against them. And it's easy to see how this distressing internal messaging suspends a distressed person in a state of despair. So to know the role of emotions in daily life, it's worth understanding how the brain receives and interprets information. Now to help us here, we can use the acronym APET to describe a model for how our brains receive and react to things. And this model also explains why thinking your way out of an emotionally charged situation can be impossible. So the acronym APET stands for Activating Agent, Pattern Match, Emotion and Thought. So let's just run through this for a moment. Let's start with the A in APET. So something happens. This is the Activating Agent. And we become subconsciously aware of something in the environment through our senses of sight, hearing, touch, smell or taste. And the scent of cologne in the street or a sudden loud bang from a blown out tyre. Or it might be a sceptical look from our partner. Someone abruptly pushes in front of the supermarket queue. You can consider these stimuli to be inputs to our behaviour pattern. So the first thing that happens in response to a stimulus is that we automatically and subconsciously perform a pattern matching to the stimulus. It's as if our brain, like a computer, conducts a search to ask, does this match with something I'm currently expecting to happen or to some previous experience? Well, this is our primary response to any incoming activating agent which takes place before conscious thought occurs. The loud bang sounds like the time we witnessed a crash, or the scent of cologne reminds us of a dysfunctional ex-partner, or the abrupt interruption of a rude stranger in the queue brings to mind an escalating squabble we observed, and the sceptical look from our partner is similar to just before we had that furious row. Now these are the pattern matches. So next, each pattern has an associated emotional tag, and this is the emotion present when the pattern was initially encoded. And it's the brain's way of providing context for the pattern match. So ultimately, to decide if it represents a safe or potentially dangerous situation. So we've covered the A, which is the activating agent or the incoming stimuli. Then we've covered the P, which is the pattern match. This is where the brain goes back through its memory store to find a context. And then we move on to the E for emotion. So next, each pattern has an associated emotional tag. And this is the emotion present when the pattern was initially encoded. 
and it's the brain's way of providing context for the pattern match. Ultimately, it's to decide if it represents a safe or potentially dangerous situation. So our brains swiftly pick out a matching memory pattern and then evokes the related emotion. We feel again the sudden fear we felt when we heard the crash, or we feel the resentment of the previous argument with our partner. And when emotion is extreme, our thinking brain is effectively overridden. So this sequence of events initiated by the original stimulus, this is the A, or activating agent, may be completed with conscious thought, and this is the T, for thought. But if this happens at all, it's always after the initial pattern match and associated emotional response. So in other words, cognitive function is primarily directed by the underlying emotional content. So if the emotion was fear, the thinking would be frightened, or if the emotion was joy, the thoughts would be light and satisfying. So how does this information inform our lived experience? Well, first and foremost, if you want to change or reframe the way you think about something, you first need to know how to respond to the emotional aspect of your experience. This is the processing of the emotion. Yet most of us haven't been taught discrete skills for managing and processing our feelings. So we avoid our feelings. Maybe we take recreational drugs or alcohol to numb how we're really feeling, or we just try to keep ourselves busy, or maybe we just blame other people and try and deflect attention for what's really going on. Yet while the emotions get buried, they remain unresolved. And this oppression of how we feel can lead to trauma, burnout, or something biological not working out for us. And by which point it seems so overwhelming to feel that we bury ourselves in passive coping strategies. This is the avoiding and the distracting, minimising, etc. that we fail to distinguish how to reclaim ownership of how we really feel. Over 20 years ago, back in my early 20s, I moved from the small city of Oxford where I grew up down to the capital city London. Now, before I'd moved, I'd spent some time working for Oxfordshire Social Services, but that hadn't prepared me for anything I was going to come up against when I started working down in London. So I moved down to London and very quickly I found myself working across several areas of social care. And there was probation. This is for men coming in and out of prison. There was a needle exchange for heroin users in Paddington. There was a homelessness shelter in Victoria and uh, a drugs and alcohol shelter. But I was working in West London And I strangely found myself kind of working simultaneously between several of these different locations. And quite frankly, I wasn't really prepared for the experience. I mean, it was um, a lot of emotional labour, I can say. And I found it pretty grinding, as perhaps you could imagine. Um, And I think I I came across as well many traumatised people with their own harrowing life backgrounds and to top it off, a cynical view of the system and those working within it. So me, basically. And one of the greatest stresses about some of these sharper ends of social care is if you ever speak to, for instance, social workers or um, people working in ambulance services or, or even teachers, one of the kind of the, the, the biggest difficulties they encounter is this sense of responsibility or accountability for things that are ultimately um, beyond their control. And so these kinds of work environments tend to attract people who are responsible and conscientious and want to do a good job. But of course, there's no getting around it. A lot of what they're going to encounter, the people that they uh, come into contact with, um, 
means that, you know, situations can be precarious and lots of things are going to happen that they're ultimately not um, completely in control of. So it's a very stressful working environment. And I was maybe 20 to 23 years old around this time and had moved down to London. I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. Um, I had my own kind of concerns with money and who I was and all of the kind of stuff that young people have going on. And basically in the background, it was just all building up, but I had no way of how to really process anything that was happening. But nevertheless, you know, I did my best to try and keep up a front. And um, I remember somebody said to me, you're always smiling, Dom, you always seem in a good mood. And um, I remember feeling quite proud about this. I, I almost took this as like a badge of honour. I mean, if someone else thought I was doing okay, I must have been doing okay. Um, but in reflection, I think that says something about my understanding of how to process uh, feelings back then. And um, essentially that I wasn't a very kind of secure young man. So I was either trying to squash or swallow or uh, push away a lot of how I was really feeling and then relying on external validation to help me think I was doing okay. And this attempt at emotional gymnastics uh, landed with many thuds. So despite the fact that I thought I was coping pretty well, I definitely wasn't happy. And I developed some troubling symptoms from my body trying to share the warnings, uh, although I wasn't really listening. But if I think back now, I often found myself feeling pretty hypervigilant, so worrying a lot or having... Um, recurring thoughts or anticipating things that might go wrong or are just about to happen. I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I wasn't eating particularly well or very much at all, in fact. I also found myself feeling kind of afraid of things that previously had been fine. So even small things like walking into a room of strangers never been a problem for me, but suddenly I was finding myself feeling quite anxious of this. Um... I was also losing pleasure in things that I'd loved doing. So I loved playing the guitar, but this was really taking a, um, this was kind of really, yeah, being pushed to the side at the time. And I found that my ability to do my work was starting to basically disintegrate. I, I think I probably had a degree of compassion fatigue and just needed a bit of uh, tender loving care that wasn't on hand when I, when I could have done with it. So I often found myself acting quite impulsively, uh, spending money I didn't have and really behaving in ways that weren't really me. Um, yeah, it's a bit embarrassing if I think back and I think too much about it. But if I put all of that into a nutshell, I think I was a bit of a dysregulated mess with a smile on my face to convince myself I was okay. Yeah, at some point, I remember talking to a friend and um, she suggested that I was suffering from uh, secondary trauma. Now, secondary trauma is having a traumatic response to someone else's traumatic experiences. So it's this uh, traumatic, traumatic stress is the, uh, or secondary traumatic stress is the emotional duress that results when, when an individual hears about the first-hand trauma experienced by, by others. So in other words, it's kind of indirect exposure to trauma. And it's here that the essential act of listening to other people's stories, and I did come across quite a few back then, um, can begin to take an emotional toll that essentially compromises your own well-being. Now, I didn't really understand this concept back then. I mean, I must confess, when I 
when I first had this term emotional trauma, my first response was kind of one of fear. Um, and it's worth remembering that this was over 20 years ago and words such as depression and trauma, they, they weren't quite so mainstream in the way that they are today. So the idea that I might have been depressed or traumatized or any other psychological hindrance felt a little bit troubling, if I'm honest, um, especially as I wasn't sure what I was then going to do with it. But as we discussed this further, my friend and I, I kind of realised that she was right. Um, and in emotional situations, sometimes you get so invested in coping that you can't or don't know how to express your feelings or let the emotion out. And that was definitely me. And I felt wired. I was running over time on emotional labour and, and basically out of bandwidth. Um, so my friend's insight as to what was going on for me was was really incisive and constructive actually and the next time we met I expressed my gratitude and and she laughed and explained that actually she'd only given me a phrase secondary trauma through which to understand my experience um, yet before this kind of name or label for what was going on for me I'd been trying to suppress it because I had no context for understanding the experience and when we feel something but we don't know what it is or we're not sure where it comes from we have little power to change it. And this felt like trying to hold an inflated beach ball underwater. You know, the pressure was rising and reaching a point where it was no longer sustainable. Yet, even though we might know this intuitively, um, you know, we might know that we can't keep swallowing and suppressing how we're really feeling, many of us still appear committed to it, um, whether intentionally or not, often because we're not quite sure what else to do. So why might this be? I mean, why would we get committed to avoiding how we're really feeling? Well, the first reason is that many of us probably carry some guilt around the concept of feelings. Not too long ago, someone told me about a funeral that they'd been to and let themselves really go and lean into their crying. Someone had come up and put their arm around their shoulder and with the best of intentions had said, don't cry. And I think those simple words, don't cry, um, they're probably words that we've all heard at some point in our life and it says something um, about the social expectations around what it is to be emotional and whether it's acceptable and whether we should really feel entitled to express how we feel. So when as a child, for instance, we have an accident, often a parent's well-intentioned typical response is to stop the crying as quickly as possible. They may soothe with distractions, whether it's sweets, toys or YouTube or something else. Yet the emphasis is less on processing the feeling and more on escaping something distressing and uncomfortable. And in the busyness of domestic life, this parental response is often one of trying to get back on track, you know, back to normal as quickly as possible. So we can understand this. Um, yet from a young age, it also means that we might learn to suppress our emotional experiences because they're inappropriate or um, feel a bit unsafe or they're just not the done thing. Uh, yeah. A second reason for why we might not know or want to deal with how we're feeling about something is that we're just simply not sure how to work through emotions healthily. So thinking about all of us as children growing up will definitely have had some experience of um, from our parents or teachers or significant uh, adults in our life 
giving us some instructional indication as to how we should regulate our feelings. And then, of course, those children, we turn into adults and we have our own children and the cycle repeats. So we're not taught how to work healthily through grief or guilt or uncertainty or shame or embarrassment or anger because these kind of get labelled as negative emotions. They're something that we should shy away from and not really shine too much light upon. And most of us need to familiarise ourselves, in fact, with how to notice significant emotions, whether we uh, deem them good or bad, because there's no such thing as bad emotions. There's just how we're feeling. But we need to learn to really recognise them, name them, and then pause and to give ourselves space and time to decide what to do with them. Yet instead, often what happens is we tend to try to jump to solutions or try to just feel better Yet we skip the process of experiencing our emotions. Um, this is almost like we're trying to feel good before feeling what you're feeling. Um, so instead, we might take, you know, the instant gratification of um, distraction or putting a chocolate biscuit in our mouth or whatever it may be, um, because this immediate hit seems an, an easier, an easier path uh, rather than resolving what's really going on underneath. So another reason why we avoid what's really going on for us is that we simply get overwhelmed. With so much energy going into distracting ourselves and avoiding or squashing how we really feel, we set ourselves up to remain overwhelmed when upsetting events occur. Because left unaddressed, emotional distress will, over time, accumulate. In other words, if we respond to awkward, uncomfortable emotions by pushing them away, they become heavier over time. The emotional burden needs to stress thinking and in many cases this will manifest in stress behaviour. So for instance, we lose our cool with our partner and kids or, um, you know, often when they haven't done anything wrong or we don't express the feeling with the right person at the right time. For instance, an annoying colleague who keeps putting too much responsibility upon us, but then we take it out with the people that we feel safe with. And of course, this then results in conflict, which then feeds back into further emotional distress and often upsetting feelings such as guilt and upset for the conflicts that we've caused with those that we love. So now let's look at some of the principles involved when it comes to emotional regulation and really learning to recognise and acknowledge and understand how we're feeling on the inside because emotional regulation and recognition, it's, it's a process. And it all starts with identifying, to, to name and to recognise what that feeling is on the inside. And then to pause, really just to notice what the emotion is telling us. And then to explore. And this is when we look for the function and the purpose of the emotion. And then once we've identified what's happening, and we've taken that pause to see what it's telling us, and we've taken that courageous act to explore what the message might be and how that might inform us, then we get to choose. And this is really to decide what we want to do with the emotion, to take action or practice acceptance or maybe to act per our values. And learning to do this is similar to how we build up any physical, practical skills. I mean, essentially what we're doing here is learning to build up and strengthen our emotional muscles. So starting then with the skill of learning to name how you feel, when you experience an emotion, take the time just to simply notice, name and express the feeling. 
Now, sometimes we might not even know what the right word is. And I think this is something that a lot of us struggle with, having the terminology at hand, um, having the right words to express ourselves. So I'll leave a a link in the show notes for an emotions wheel that might be useful for you to download and have a look through. Because sometimes just having access to these words can be really useful for helping us kind of um, pin our attention on what's going on for us. And then we can start to feel greater clarity and power because we're using these words for our emotions now. It's starting to give us that little bit of um, ownership back over what's going on. And so making your emotions and thoughts more concrete helps the process of reclaiming your control. And in doing this, you might be surprised at how often you're feeling something, but not actually identifying that feeling. When we don't know what we're feeling, it leaves us helpless to act. So you can start by making a conscious decision that you want to hear and acknowledge how you feel. So next time you find yourself in an emotional situation, it's very difficult to kind of bring ourselves back down in the in the heat of the moment. But you want to start by learning to make a conscious decision to hear and acknowledge how you feel. So you might take yourself away from the situation. Um, you might focus upon just re-establishing some calm in the moment, whether it's a breathing technique or some gentle movement or just taking yourself out of that um, immediate situation. And then just sit with the feeling. And this is the first crucial step for many of us is to just really sit with the feeling. And perhaps for you, I know it's certainly been for me, that can be a difficult step at first because it means that we've got to be we've got to be a little bit brave sometimes to really to really sit with what's going on inside. That's a that's a very significant step for many of us. And then once you've got that sense, you can write it down. Now this is really useful to write down your your emotions, you'll write down your feelings, because what this does is it kind of it slows everything down um, and it provides a chance to gather context and insight. And then you can choose a course of action that aligns with the person that you want to be. So sometimes our thoughts are going so fast, we haven't really got an opportunity to process anything. But if we sit down and we make that action to write down how we're feeling, this is a conscious effort just to slow everything down and regulate our experience a little bit more. If you're struggling with this, take a moment to notice and observe your bodily sensations. Perhaps you have a tightness in your throat or a lightness in your stomach. Listen to your body and then allow yourself to be informed by the message that you're receiving. So for instance, you might really listen in. And if you listen in deeply and you listen in with courage and honesty, and you might find, depending upon what the situation is, maybe it's a mother with her son and she writes, I feel worried that my son is going to mess up his exams. And this will affect his future. I want to communicate this fear, but I'm scared that I'll lose his confidence if I do. Or maybe I feel anxious when my partner gives me that look because it brings up the feeling I had before that last explosive argument. Yet I'm concerned that he won't want to hear how this makes me feel and will end up having a blowout if I raise this with him. Or I felt sad when I smelt the scent of cologne walking down the street because it reminded me of my past ex and the relationship I poured my heart into rescuing, and still it didn't work out. And what do I need to process within to move myself forward and beyond this past suffering? 
So I hope you can hear how this approach offers a modest yet critical first step in learning to acknowledge and address how you feel in a situation. And it's a first step to taking back some emotional ground and owning, owning your experience. Now there's a caveat to some of this. Sometimes we can get this process a little bit mixed up until we've had some practice with it. And so there's, there's a couple of problems that it's worth just kind of um, drawing some attention to. And the first problem is how we can sometimes get this process a little bit twisted. So for instance, we might write something like, I feel like the world is an awful place, or I feel like a terrible human being, or I feel like everyone is against me. Now, these are not feelings. These are thoughts. Um, there's no emotion words in here. And so it's important that we always bring our attention back to the emotion um, and make sure that you're using emotion words in the sentence when you're describing how you're feeling. Now, it sounds simple, but many of us need to improve with this because our thoughts are so impulsive. Um, you know, it's, it's easy not to interrogate our thoughts because we just tend to accept their content without much reflection. So instead of, I feel like the world is an awful place or everyone is against me, we want to use words like, I feel worried or I feel scared or disappointed. I feel regretful. I feel sad. And again, use your relationship with your body just to really inform what that emotion might be for you. Now, a second issue is when we start confusing language, we, we can often mix up um, I feel with I am. So, for instance, we might think I am depressed or I am anxious. Now, the issue with this is it's not too far away from I am depression or I am my anxiety. And the potential issue here is that it turns what you're feeling into your identity. And this creates a reality that gives you little to no power to change. Yet if we say, I feel sad right now, this describes something you're experiencing rather than who or what you are. So I feel hopeless is better than I am depressed. Because again, at least it has this temporary nature and it's something we can start to take control of. Now it might sound pedantic, but... Um, because we're all constantly internalising and strengthening the messages that we give to ourselves, these words really do matter. Now, a third issue with trying to process um, and trying to name and frame our emotions is sometimes we're just too vague. So the more specific we are with our emotions, the more power we have to resolve the feeling. So as I mentioned earlier, you can use an emotion wheel here, and I'll leave a link to one in the show notes. Um, just to give you uh, some of that additional vocabulary can be very useful. But it takes practice to get specific about how you feel. I mean, the louder, brasher emotions are easier to recognise, yet the quieter ones take some leaning in to really hear and acknowledge. And sometimes we have more than one emotion at a time. And so learning to distinguish between them can be, can be a useful step as well. And we also want to learn to notice more than one emotion simultaneously. So in other words, then we can learn to view our emotions over time as a friendly messenger carrying instructive memos we need to hear and understand. And when we name our emotions and begin to frame them, we start to reclaim our power over them once more. So by naming our emotions, we, we offer them room and validity. And so we no longer need to swallow or squash, ignore or avoid their presence because Let's face it, I mean, it's exhausting to keep how you really feel 
at arm's length. Instead, we can accept that sometimes our emotions will feel awkward, messy and uncomfortable, embarrassing. And that's okay. By learning to embrace your emotions, to hold them close and be receptive to their message, what was once an intrusive burden can become a far lighter guest and friend in your life. Thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me for the next episode on processing emotions coming up shortly.